I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. It's been a wild structure ride through the movies we've discussed. Disney's Tangled and Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men. And now we're going a bit back in time to 1940s His Girl Friday, starring Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to correct for a pretty dreadful oversight in the Tangled discussion. I got so excited by that discussion, I never mentioned the freaking writer. It's Dan Fogelman, who also wrote Pixar's Cars, was the showrunner-creator for the much-loved Galavan, and is currently the showrunner-creator for the NBC hit series This Is Us. Fogelman has serious writing chops, and I failed to give him that recognition in the Tangled discussion, and I kind of feel bad about that, so I'm doing it now. So while we're on the topic of writers, I want to talk just a bit about the writers of His Girl Friday. His Girl Friday was produced during the height of the studio system, in which a studio would contract writers like construction workers. A producer would pick a story and then tell the writers to write it. They were considered monkeys who type. This is why, even to this day, it's producers and directors who get the big credits for films. Michael Bay, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas... As a matter of fact, the only writers who are considered significant enough in film to have their names included in the marketing are Aaron Sorkin, Joss Whedon, and J.J. Abrams, all of whom came up through television, which acknowledges openly the power of the writer in the story. It's my contention that the writer is where the story's heart is. This is why, typically, the quality of a movie is inversely proportional to how many different writers worked on it. Well, writers or teams of writers. A team working together counts as one writer for this purpose. For His Girl Friday, it's producer Howard Hawks who gets the credit for the movie. His name is on the posters. But the real writers are Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, who wrote the stage play The Front Page, on which His Girl Friday is based, and Charles Lederer, who adapted the screenplay. That Letterer was hired on to do this adaptation makes sense. The first film Letterer did for Hollywood was the 1931 adaptation of The Front Page, also called The Front Page, and which held more closely to the original text, with two men in the lead roles and no romantic story working behind it. I think it's time for another adaptation, with two men and a romance. Hopefully someone's working on that. Okay, so let's talk about His Girl Friday. There are a lot of things that make this movie great, and we don't have near enough time to talk about them all. But don't worry, like the other structure movies, we will be returning to talk about them later when we get to advanced criticism. That said, there are a couple of things I want to hit quickly up front. Like Uncle Roy at the Thanksgiving table, His Girl Friday is a product of the dominating culture at the time it was conceived. There's this concept called terroir, which I can't pronounce because it's French, but loosely translated means of the land. Winemakers began to notice that the qualities of a wine could be traced back to the specific ground the grapes were planted in. Subtle flavors seep from the land into the grapes and then into the wine, and that's why regional varieties can have different characteristics. I borrow this concept a bit to apply to narrative. A story is very much the product of the time in which it was told, and His Girl Friday came out of some pretty racist and patriarchal soil. This doesn't excuse the problematic things that we see in His Girl Friday, but it does give it context when we're ready for that discussion. We can recognize that there are attitudes that were culturally acceptable back then that we've grown away from. The recognition and open discussion of these elements is essential to our growth as a society. 
His Girl Friday has these moments, and when we get to criticism, we are going to open that up for discussion. I just didn't want anyone to think that I was ignoring it or that it didn't matter, because it does. These cultural ideas get traction when no one challenges them, when no one rejects the premise. I'm fully rejecting the premise, don't worry. But it's not the focus of this discussion, and I don't want us to get sidetracked. What we're focusing on for the moment is conflict and structure, and boy howdy does His Girl Friday deliver on that score. One of the reasons why I chose this movie is because of the beautifully constructed internal and external conflict lines that dance together like Astaire and Rogers. Watching this movie is like watching a talented border collie run an agility course. It all looks so hard, and yet the dog makes it look like it was born clearing these hurdles. His Girl Friday jumps so many hurdles all at once and so gracefully that it looks born to the task. And let's count the hurdles. One, it pits the romantic couple against each other in the central narrative conflict, and that almost never works. Two, it runs an external and internal conflict side by side that so perfectly mirror each other that they share most of the anchor scenes. Three, it tells us a thoughtful societal story with strong themes and commentary alongside the central story. Four, it builds character through dialogue and action with only enough exposition to get us off to the races, and even that is delivered on the back of characters in active pursuit of their goals. Five, it does all of this so efficiently, in 90 minutes dead, not one word of dialogue, not one moment of action wasted. It's a masterpiece. Now, that said, if you didn't enjoy His Girl Friday, that's okay. A lot of my students have a hard time with the style of old black and white movies that can be off-putting. We're used to reading the visual language and cues of modern filmmaking. Going back to a movie where the lead has his back to the camera for a good chunk of the opening scene is going to feel weird, and it can be distracting. Some of you may have found the terroir aspect so off-putting it kept you from enjoying the movie. For others, the dialogue is so of its time that it can be hard to follow and difficult to engage with. All of these are valid reasons for not being able to connect and engage with His Girl Friday. But I would encourage you to try again, to try to get past whatever it is that's keeping you from accessing this film. I love old movies. I have since I was a little kid. And so for me, it's a lot easier to accept and get over these very real and valid hurdles to engagement. His Girl Friday is worth it because it is such an exceptional example of conflict, story structure, character development, dialogue, efficiency in storytelling. It is worth the time it takes to study it over and over again. Every time I watch it, it teaches me something new. First, as always, we need to start with conflict. Now, there are two present and forceful conflicts in this movie, and so I will say you can choose either of them and be right. This doesn't happen often. Twin conflicts that work so harmoniously together that there are just as many arguments for one to be central as there are for the other. So this is a rare case where I will say that whether you went external with Hildy versus Walter or internal with Hildy versus Hildy, you're right. They are both legit central narrative conflicts. All right, so let's start with the external. Hildy versus Walter. Hildy's goal is to go to Albany with her fiancé Bruce and get married. Walter's goal is to keep Hildy in New York working for him as a journalist. Mutual exclusivity check? We got a pass. All right. Then we've got the internal conflict. Hildy, the wife, wants to marry Bruce. Hildy, the journalist, wants to work at the newspaper. Here we've got the classic setup for an internal conflict. One person 
who wants two mutually exclusive things. But is it truly mutually exclusive that she can't be both a wife and a journalist? If she wants to marry Bruce, I think it is. Not if she wants to marry Walter. So this does pass the mutual exclusivity check, and we're off to the races with two conflicts that dovetail right into each other. There are only two anchor scenes that do not serve both conflicts at the same time. It's kind of wild. All right, so let's get into the anchor scenes. First is the inciting incident. Hildy goes to Walter's office to tell him she's getting married and moving to Albany with Bruce Baldwin. She plans to leave right away. Walter immediately asks her to come back and write for him, and he starts in on foiling her plans. This serves as the inciting incident for the external conflict, definitely. But some people might not have noticed the internal conflict is also at play. Because let's face it, Hildy didn't have to come back and tell Walter in person that she's getting married and moving to Albany. She could have written him a letter. She could have called. She could have just gone to Albany and ignored him. They are divorced after all. It's done. She doesn't need him to sign papers. In fact, she thanks him in this scene for not fighting the divorce at all. So why is she there? Because journalist Hildy does not want to marry Bruce and move to Albany. And she knows that if she dangles herself in front of Walter, he's going to grab for her and do for her what she can't do for herself right now. Get her out of this engagement to Bruce Baldwin. We hit our second anchor scene a bit later, another single scene that serves both conflicts, when Walter takes Bruce and Hildy out to lunch and offers her the story in trade for a big life insurance policy purchased through Bruce. External, Walter is trying to get Hildy to work for him. Internal, journalist Hildy wants to write the story. She just needs to see it as being good for Bruce in order to justify it to wife Hildy. And there you go. Both conflicts served when Hildy says yes, she'll write the story and makes the active choice to engage with Walter. Moving forward to our midpoint reversal, we hit the first of the anchor scenes that don't happen in the same scene. First, we have the external midpoint reversal. Walter has Bruce arrested, and this is a step too far. Hildy makes a big speech. She's leaving. She's ripping up the article. She's done with Walter Burns and with journalism and all of it. I'm going to be a woman, not a news-getting machine, she says. Then, just a few minutes later, the internal conflict flips everything on its head. Earl Williams escapes, and journalist Hildy can't resist that story. This may seem like a moment for the external conflict, but remember, Walter didn't make Earl Williams escape. It just happened. And this choice that journalist Hildy makes is almost out of her control. Telling the story is so integral to who she is as a person, she almost can't help herself. Next, we move to the fourth anchor scene, the Act 2 turning point into Act 3, another anchor scene that serves both conflicts. Hildy chooses to hide Earl for the story over bailing out Bruce. It's also a nice reflection of her earlier choice to leave the story in order to bail out Bruce the first time Walter had him arrested. This moment serves both stories because Walter is the one who put Bruce in jail again and Hildy's succumbing to his machinations. But she's also succumbing to journalist Hildy, who is so much stronger than wife Hildy that, let's face it, wife Hildy never really stood a chance. Next is the dark moment when all is lost. Molly Malloy jumps out of the window. Hildy absently calls Walter darling while processing the horror of it all, and that shows her in some deep trouble. Louis kidnaps Bruce's mother. Walter, why did you have to do this to me? Hildy cries. 
She sees it all clearly, and of course, he did this to her because she came into his office and asked him to, even as her words stated the opposite of what she truly and clearly wanted. Now we move into the climax, where our internal conflict gets resolved first. This is when Hildy is trying to write the story, and Bruce is trying to get her attention, and she says, If you love me, Bruce, you gotta take me as I am. I'm no suburban bridge player. I'm a newspaper man. This shows the final integration of journalist Hildy and wife Hildy, with wife Hildy getting a much, much lower billing. Journalist Hildy has won. She knows who she is. She is a newspaper man. The external climax takes a while longer to resolve. It isn't until the moment when Hildy cries about thinking that Walter didn't love her, that he wasn't fighting for her. She chooses to stay and work for him, sending Bruce away to Albany where he can be happy with the only Mrs. Baldwin that's going to be in his life, at least for a while, his mother. And then we move right into the quickest resolution ever. As soon as it's decided, Walter and Hildy will be married and they're going on a honeymoon. Walter gets a call about another story in Albany and there goes the honeymoon, just like before, which was the complaint that Hildy was making about their marriage from the beginning. We've talked a lot about how the meaning of a story comes from what has changed. In the end, here we are, and it seems like everything's right back where it was in the beginning, at least in the beginning for Hildy and Walter. Except that something has changed. Wife Hildy isn't pulling at Hildy anymore. Hildy isn't pretending to expect or want that traditional lifestyle. Journalist Hildy is at the helm now. And this is where my only significant complaint about the story structure of His Girl Friday comes in. Our newly merged and self-actualized Hildy looks disappointed that they're going to be skipping the honeymoon because a story broke, which makes us think that she didn't get exactly what she really wanted all along. I wish we hadn't gone for that joke, but instead shown how Hildy has changed. I wish it was she who got excited about the story, she who suggested they skip the honeymoon. I wish that we'd seen Walter change just a bit, enough to sincerely try to give her the honeymoon she said she wanted, only to have our enlightened Hildy, our newly amalgamated Hildy, who now finally knows herself truly, pursue the story in excitement rather than in resignation. But really, that's a minor complaint about an almost flawless story structure. And when we get to advanced criticism, there's going to be so much more to talk about. I can hardly wait. Okay, that's it for today. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at an atypical structure in Easy A. Can you throw out your seven anchor scenes and find the underlying structure that is slightly different? Or is this a more traditional structure than it seems on the surface? Those answers and more next week. In the meantime, try to figure out what you see. If you have questions about how story works, call 302-643-CHIP. That's 302-643-2447 and leave a message. Or you can email me at Lonnie at Chipperish.com or contact me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich or at Chipperish with the hashtag HowStoryWorks. HowStoryWorks is a free college-level course in narrative theory and is entirely supported by listener donations. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep it in production and gain access to exclusive Chipperish content and a community of amazing smart people. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish for more information. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Okay, so let's get into it, shall we? First, as always, we need to start as always, as always. That's how we pronounce it now.